James chapter 1. Now, last week we did uh, an intro to the book of James. And I give you a lot of background on James and who he was. And uh, James, as you know, as maybe you even learned last week, it was Jesus' little brother, his half-brother. He had the, they had the same, uh, same mama, but different dads. Jesus didn't have an earthly dad. His adopted dad, Joseph, was James' uh, paternal dad, biological dad. And they would have grown, grown up together. And James, while he was growing up, uh, we see multiple times in the New Testament where he didn't believe in his brother as Messiah. But eventually, after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, we find out that uh, Jesus actually, from Paul, appeared to James. And then we learn that James, um, through the writings of Paul and in the book of Acts, that James actually becomes an incredible leader in the church. And uh, at one point, uh, Paul calls him, along with uh, Peter and, uh, and John, the pillars of the church, and, and Paul and Peter and John all would have actually, uh, if, if we're right in the way that they were ordered there, John, James was listed first, so he's the most prominent. They would have deferred to his leadership. Think about that. We think of Paul or Peter as like the great apostles, but James was the great leader of the church. And we get to study his epistle, his letter here over the next couple months. Well, one thing about James, it's hard to figure out is a theme, Because when you look at James at first glance, sometimes when you look at the text, it looks like it's uh, just this random assortment of proverbs and of random wise sayings. And in fact, Martin Luther, do you know Martin Luther didn't like James? He called, he didn't know if James should really even be in the New Testament. He called it a right straw-y epistle. Straw-y, like made of straw, as opposed to the letters that were gold and silver and really valuable. Another uh, German, uh, uh, German theologian in the 20th century, another Martin by the name of Martin Debelius, said that uh, James was actually without... It was just like he wrote a bunch of random thoughts down on paper. He had no consistent thought pattern. He's all over the place. But both of these guys couldn't be further from right. They, they, uh, Martin Luther had a lot of great things that you and I are even indebted to him for. But on the book of James, his assessment was way wrong. Incredibly wrong. And what I want to do a little bit here, even before we get into the text, uh, is, is make some sense of the theme and the flow of James for you. Now, uh, many scholars over the years have said the same thing. They said, James is really hard because it's just, it's so, he's like ADD, he's all over the map. I can't, I can't figure him out. It's good stuff, but I have no idea what the flow is of this letter. It's like he just picked up everything out of his drawer or copied stuff in his word processor, put it on one document and, and sent it out. And that was it. It's like the guy who forwards a bunch of emails to you, right? I mean, that that was James. But really what's happened over the last uh, few decades is in examining the book of James through a process called, I'm not going to bore you with it other than just to mention it, called discourse analysis. And what this does is it looks at the entire text of a book, the entire discourse, and it looks for patterns in it. See, the, the problem, your, your Bible, do you have paragraphs and formatting and numbers and all that stuff? All that stuff was added later. Do you know that? And in the original Greek text, uh, there were no capital letters. There were no spaces between words. There were no paragraphs. It was all this big run-on jumble. And you're like, how does that make any sense? Well, uh, the Greek words, they all would either end in a vowel or in a couple different consonants. So you could make sense of the words. There's very few times where we're not quite sure exactly what it was. But all the spaces, the gaps, the paragraphs were added later. So how do you make sense of a letter in terms of the flow? Like we put paragraphs, right? 
Um, like it, sometimes it drives me nuts if you're reading an article and there's like the, the author, the writer doesn't know how to use paragraphs. And like it's this crazy long paragraph. And you're like, I totally lost my place reading it. Paragraphs are so helpful to see and to read and to, to organize thought. Well, you use discourse analysis to look at this whole group of texts, this jumble of text in our eyes, and you look for patterns. What are some of the main patterns that come up in the text? Because that's not with punctuation, but with patterns of thought and with patterns of, of uh, dialogue and a discourse in their letter. That's how the authors of the biblical text would have made sense of it and created order to it. You and I wouldn't see it visually, but if we would read it and look for those things, we would see it. Does that make sense so far? So how do we do that in James? Well, let me, let me show you. If you look at James, James is really fond of this one phrase, my brothers or my beloved brothers. And what you find out is when you examine the text and you look for every time he says, my brothers, and couples it with a command. So my brothers do this. My brothers don't do this. It, it's the only times he says it is at the beginning of like this new idea of thought or maybe even this new paragraph. In fact, look at some of these with me. I'll put them up on the screen for you. Verse 2 starts a new thought. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. So there's, a, there's my brothers and there's a command. Verse 16, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers. And he talks about your speech. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality. Chapter 2, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers? Not many of you, verse, chapter 3, verse 1, should become teachers, my brothers. Well, there's, it, it does this all the way through, but there's, like, there's this one spot right in the middle of the book where he doesn't use my brothers and he doesn't use a command. And it happens in James chapter 3, verses 13, uh, in, even into chapter 4, but primarily 13 through 18. And I think what James is doing, uh, and many believe this, uh, I could be wrong, but I, I think it's a really good argument and it helps us divide up the text, is that in each of these sections, James is building, and when he gets to chapter 3, that's the climax of, of his letter, the main point of the whole letter. And do you know what it says? Uh, scan forward with me here. Uh, I guess I have some more text up here. There's one other time where he doesn't say my brothers in James, end of James chapter 4 and beginning of James chapter 5. And I think those cases, when we get to those, I'll, I'll show you uh, pretty much every, every commentator, every pastor, every scholar I've read believes in this case, in that little section, James is actually talking to unbelievers who, uh, were, who, who attended the church, who would have been here in the hearing of the reading of the letter. Um, but anyway, look at chapter 3 and this kind of climactic verse. Do I have that up there, Rachel? If you go forward. What's the next slide? Just go ahead and go, go through here. Let's see what's there. One more. So there's the middle. Okay, one more. Wait for it. There it is. All right. He says this. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast or be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. See, he doesn't start off with my brothers. He just says, who's wise and understanding among you? And he contrasts here then this idea of wisdom from above versus wisdom from below. And I think this is the overarching theme of the whole book. And, and all throughout each of these other paragraphs that begin with my brothers... James, we can look at it through this lens of James is going to give us, he's a pastor, right? So he gives all kinds of illustrations, really vivid. That's why people love James, 
Really good illustrations. And you can say, okay, he's contrasting wisdom from above and wisdom from below, earthly wisdom or spiritual wisdom. So in chapter one, we're going to look at trials and we're going to say, James is going to say there's an opportunity to go through trials with wisdom from above or earthly human wisdom from below. And, and for, you know what wisdom is? Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied, right? It's knowledge that I actually put into action. I actually apply. Well, for James, I think he would say wisdom is faith rightly lived out or faith put in motion. And so when James, all that big introduction to say it, each, each week we're going to look at it and we're going to say, James is showing us one way to live that's godly wisdom from above in how to live out my faith. And then he's going to show us another example that's earthly wisdom where I don't want to do this because that would be a disaster for my faith. Does that make sense? We're going to compare those two things every week in the text that we get to. I believe that's what James is writing to uh, the people about. So let's get into the text. Look at chapter 1. We're going to start right here in verse 1. And we're going to look for wisdom from above versus wisdom from below. James, he writes, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. I told you last week, I already told you a little bit about James again this morning, but he's writing as a pastor to people who had been part of the church in Jerusalem who had been dispersed throughout uh, the known area because of persecution. Here's some examples of that persecution. Chapter 8, verse 1 of Acts, uh, after Stephen is executed, there arose Paul, Saul, uh, who later become Paul, approved of it, and there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Look at Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So we learn in Acts that because of this persecution, people had spread out all over, by some accounts, even uh, as far as uh, potentially even in Rome and, and over into uh, uh, the east of the Jordan. And, and they spoke the word to no one but Jews. They went to the synagogues and preached the gospel. So James is writing to Jewish Christians who have been uh, spread out because they've been persecuted. Now... Uh, and it's not the persecution like maybe we would face. Like there's all kinds of levels of persecution, right? There's simply speaking evil against you because of uh, God's word and because of living out your faith, which is a minor thing, all the way up to uh, threatening your life. And uh, I think it was all the way up to threatening their life that they left town, uh, not just because of harsh words. So James is writing to people who have been persecuted for their faith. Now look at verse 2. Look what he says to these people who are struggling and who have fled. He says... He doesn't say just, you know, hang in there. It's going to be okay. I know it's rough. No, he says, look at this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What? Come on, James. Show a little compassion. These people are being beat up for their faith. They've run. They've fled. And now they're in a land where it's foreign. You ever, you ever had to move to a totally new place? And you didn't have a job waiting for you there? <laughs> and so they're struggling to find work. Think of all the different trials they're facing. And, James, and, they're, and they're struggling. And James is like, hey, don't worry. Be happy. Be joyful, right? He doesn't say be happy. He says, count it joy. See, there's a difference between happiness and joy. You know what, you know what the difference is? Happiness is based on my happenings. Joy comes from within. 
He didn't say happy. He said joy. Some translations wrongly use the word happy in this first part of James. And uh, that's a a bad move. It's joy is what James told them. But he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet or when you endure, when you encounter uh, trials of various kinds. And that word to meet or encounter is like uh, it's always used when somebody is coming up against something really hard in their life. When you face something really hard, uh, count it joy. Now, I said it earlier when I pray, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I think when, uh, you know what I count joy? is when I get out of the trial. Do you ever do that? It's like, this is really hard. I can't wait to get out. Whew, I'm out. Joy, right? No, no, no. James says, no, when you, when you meet it, when you encounter it, in the middle of it, it's not trying to get out of it. It's moving through it. That's the part you count joy. Keep that in mind. Before we keep going, though, you know what we need to figure out is what is a trial? Trials of various kinds. What is a trial? I think this definition I put on your insert is a helpful one. And I had this jotted down somewhere, and I I wasn't sure when I I was working on my message this week where it came from, and I found it yesterday. It actually is from uh, James McDonald. But he says this, a a trial, I think it's really helpful, is a painful circumstance allowed by God to shape my conduct and my character. It's a painful circumstance that's allowed by God to shape my conduct and my character. That's a trial. James says when you face a trial, a painful circumstance uh, that's, that's allowed by God to shape your conduct and character, count it joy, right? Are you facing any trials this week? I bet you are. If you're not, uh, they're coming. Trust me. Not if, but when. But let's unpack this. Look at it. Uh, it's a painful circumstance. Trials aren't fun, are they? You know what James doesn't say? He doesn't say, count your trial, joy. Does he? Does he say that? Does he say the, the trial? That's such a good thing. It's such a fun thing. Count it joy. Does he say that? No, he says, when you meet a trial, when you encounter one in your life, count that moment, that process, that season as joy. Not the trial itself, but the path through it. Because it's incredibly hard. Trials are painful. They, they, they hurt emotionally. They hurt, pain, they hurt physically. They hurt spiritually. Um, and notice he says that trials of various kinds in the text. James doesn't have a trial of, of a specific kind in mind. Not necessarily uh, just persecution. Um, don't think that uh, whatever you're going through isn't, uh, if, it, if it's hard, if it's allowed by God, even if it's small, that it's not a trial you can gain joy from. Right? Uh, you don't have to be persecuted to be going through a trial. Uh, sickness can be a trial. Uh, Carol breaking her leg is a huge trial. The death of a loved one is a trial. And they're painful circumstances of various kinds. Persecution is a trial, but it's, all trials are not persecution. Uh, notice, too, in this definition, they're allowed by God. Who's the one still in control? God is. So even in your trial, while it might not seem like anybody or anything is in control, God's in control. He is. Do you believe that? He's allowing you to go through this because he loves you. Because he loves you. And he has purpose in it to shape you. You know the text from Isaiah chapter 64, right? Uh, but, but now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay 
and you are our potter. Uh, God gives the same illustration to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 18 of Jeremiah. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, and the Lord said to him, Jeremiah, arise, go down to the potter's house. I'm going to give you an illustration. There I'm going to let you hear my words. So I went to the potter's house, and there he was working at the wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, so he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. And the Lord goes on, hey, I'm the potter, uh, you're the clay, I'm going to shape you as I see fit. Will you stay on the wheel and let me shape you? That's a trial. That's a trial. They're to shape my conduct. They're to shape my character. God allows them to happen, which sounds really weird, but because he loves us. Now, there's a difference, though, between a trial and a consequence, right? Because some of you are here and you're like, yeah, trial, but dude, I've heard people and they're like, yeah, I'm going through this tough trial. And I'm thinking to myself, no, you brought that on yourself because you made a really stupid choice. That's not a trial. Would you agree? There's trials and there's consequences and there's differences between them. Consequences are something different than a trial. A consequence is the natural outcome of my choices. I've made a stupid decision. Uh, I was going 85 down uh, State Road 15 and got pulled over. Oh, what a trial. I've got to pay this ticket. No, 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 no. You got a lead foot, buddy. Like, slow down. It's not a trial, it's a consequence, right? See, Peter recognizes this. Peter's first epistle is primarily about trials and hardship as well. He says, but rejoice, verse 13, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. He says in verse 12 right before this, don't be surprised when you encounter fiery trials. But look at verse 15. He says, don't, make sure it's not a consequence. Don't let any of you, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, don't make stupid decisions where you're not suffering because of a trial, but because of consequence. Do you see the difference? Now, there's a right biblical response to both of these two things. The right biblical response, let's go backwards, to a consequence is repent. If it's a consequence, I've made a dumb choice or I've made a foolish choice or a series of foolish choices, I need to repent. Now, sometimes when I repent, I need to repent and I need to own it. Uh, Sometimes what happens is then now that consequence, enduring that consequence becomes a trial, doesn't it? I've repented, and, and parts of that can become it, but it's still a consequence. Don't, uh, don't, don't be playing the little violin, right? You made that choice. Now, how do you rightly respond to a trial? And here's what James is concerning himself with. Well, you embrace it. You embrace it, and you learn from it so that God would shape you as you go through it. Various trials of all different kinds. You and I, you've probably faced some this week. You maybe faced one this morning. I don't know if your family was grumpy this morning when they woke up. Maybe you faced the trial. Right? Embrace it. Let God shape you through it. But before we go on, just one last thing. I want to do this one last thing. Just to make sure we know uh, that James is talking about trials and not consequence. And how I can just, I need to distinguish in my own life in terms of applying this to my life between trials and consequences. Let me give you a couple examples. You tell me uh, trial or consequence, all right? So here's the situation. You get to work one day this week and you're incredibly tired. You're worn out, tired, exhausted. And somebody's like, why are you so tired? 
option one. You say, well, it's because uh, I have a a nine-month-old daughter and she was teething all night. I was up till 3 a.m. Tell me, is being tired at work a trial or a consequence? Trial. He didn't have any control over, over that, right? He was being a good dad. He's caring for his daughter. A good mom. She's caring for her daughter. Okay, how about this? I was, I'm really dragging today. I was up till 3 a.m. Why were you up till 3 a.m.? I was playing video games. Trial or consequence? Consequence. Consequence. There's a pause button on that remote. Pause it and go to bed. How about this? I lost my job. Trial or consequence? You don't know. Because you don't know the circumstance yet, do you? you got to ask, well, why did you lose your job? How about this? Well, the company I, I, I work for is doing poorly, and they had to lay people off. Trial or consequence? Trial. Okay. Um, how about this? I lost my job because I kept showing up late, and they finally fired me. Trial or consequence? Consequence. Own it. Now, that doesn't, now here's, here's what's tough, though. Life r- rarely divides itself that cleanly. And the, the reality is that the trials we go through uh, are often this messy mix of trial and consequence all wrapped up together in this ugly ball called sin. <laughs> Isn't that true? And so we need to repent where we need to repent and embrace where we need to embrace and, and, and then go through the trial. So let's look, what James, let's look at the instruction James gives us for going through trials. Let's keep reading. He says again, uh, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What we're going to see here in in the rest of this passage in James is, remember from the beginning, the, the theme throughout the whole book, there's wisdom from above and wisdom from below. And James is going to show us two aspects that pop up in trials. One where we can gain wisdom from above and live it out. One where we embrace wisdom from below and we, we, uh, we sin and it ends in death. The first aspect is testing. And when we're tested in a trial, we're to embrace it, right? We're going to, he's going to talk about that first. And then the next thing, when we get later in the text, he's also going to talk about, but also in trials, you're going to face temptation, You're going to face temptation, and not temptation from above, from God, temptation from within. It's your own desires that are tempting you. Because in the midst of a trial, I've got a choice. I can either embrace it, or I can can give in to temptation, and I can sin. I can become angry. I can become bitter. I can become depressed. I can fill in the blank, right? Which way do we want to go? We want to embrace it. But we got to understand there's testing and there's temptation. So let's look at testing first. Uh, in James chapter 1, uh, verses 2 through 4, James, remember I told you his, his real name is actually Jacob? And somehow through English translations, he becomes James. Well, he uses this kind of ladder stair-step device. So it's kind of Jacob's James ladder here. Look, he starts out, um, he, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, verse 3, that the testing of your faith See it? Produces steadfastness. That's this first aspect of a trial. It's the the good side of it, that we count joy. And and it produces steadfastness or endurance. When I embrace the trial, I'm getting stronger. I'm growing. I'm enduring. I'm becoming steadfast. I'm I'm getting, you know, like two-a-days in football, right? Anybody play football in high school? 
Two a days were the worst. I don't know if they still do them or not, but you'd go for like four hours in the morning, then you'd go eat and uh, take a nap, and you'd come back and go for another four hours in the evening, and it was brutal. And it was hard. But if you made through it steadfast, by the end you were strengthened, right? In fact, uh, if you let that steadfastness have its full effect, embraced it the whole time, you were made perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You, you, you grew, now not perfect in the sense of totally perfect, but in the sense of being complete. And eventually, in, in verse 12, James is going to tell us that this ends with, with Jesus awarding us the crown of life. So if we climb up his ladder, we seek wisdom from above, we're, we're going to get life. It's going to end very well. There's going to be, and I can count it, Joy. So embrace your trials, right? You got it? That's easy, isn't it? You're all looking at me like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's really hard. I hate embracing my trials. Um, it, well, James, again, he's a good pastor. He knows this. And so he tells us what we should do. Here again, now we're gonna, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see this almost every week. James is going to give us a couple illustrations to demonstrate his main point. His main point here is when you, uh, when you face a trial, embrace it and learn from it. Embrace it, okay? Count it joy. And you're like, I don't know how to. It's really hard. Well, he says this. Um, if any, verse 5, if you lack wisdom, what's the context? Wisdom in what way? For facing my trial, right? Wisdom in facing my trial. I don't know how to do this. Okay, good. If you don't know, um, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Look, if, if you need wisdom to get through the trial, ask God. He'll help you. That's wisdom from above, isn't it? He'll help you get through it. And notice, he gives generously without what? Reproach. Now, how many of you are like me, and you're going through a trial, and you complain to God about it? You ever do that? Like, I, I, why is this happening? Why can't I get... I, when is this going to end? And I complain to him. And there would be good reason for him to look at me than when I finally go to him and say, okay, would you help me? It'd be, it'd be easy for him to look at me with reproach and go, um, I'll help you. But man, don't you see what you did? You see how foolish you were? Like, like, you know what I'm saying? Look at what James says. Though he doesn't do that. I don't need to worry about that. I just go to him and ask for wisdom and he gives it to me generously. His heart is pleased. That's why he's had me in this trial the whole time is so that finally I would turn to him. He gives generously without reproach. And then he gives this illustration of what it looks like asking for this type of wisdom. See, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts, he's like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man. He's unstable in all of of his ways. He says, uh, God's not going to reproach you when you ask, but he... When you ask, he wants you to ask with faith. If you're really going to turn and embrace this trial, if you're really going to let steadfastness have its full effect through the trial, hey, there's no wavering on this. It's all or nothing. Turn to him or not. Don't be like, turn to him now and then turn back five seconds later. Like, yeah, I really, uh, I don't know. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Don't straddle the fence. You're like a wave that's tossed by the wind and driven by the wind. You're like somebody sitting on the fence. And you're just getting shot at from both directions. James is saying you can't have it both ways. Either you're going to embrace your trial 
And you're going to embrace that testing. Or as he's going to show a little later, you're going to give in to temptation and you're going to sin. It's either wisdom from above or wisdom from below. Your, your choice. It's your choice, loved ones. Which one will you choose? Don't straddle the fence. There's, there's not having it both ways. All here in the context of trials. I remember James has an older brother, right? And he said something about having it both ways. Do you remember what he said? It's curious how little brothers always echo their older brothers at times, isn't it? Well, James is no exception. He echoes the words of his brother, Jesus, a lot. In, in, in especially the Sermon on the Mount, here's one of the things Jesus, his older brother, says. He said, um, this is his way of saying you can't have it both ways. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. There, there's no having it both ways. And James is telling us it's like, it's like a wave tossed by the wind and driven by the wind. You can't have it both ways. And then his older brother gives an illustration of that. He talks about money. He says, you can't serve both God and money. And now James is going to give an illustration, uh, just like his older brother, you can't serve both God and money. Look, let's keep reading the text. But let the lowly brother... Or the poor brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich boast. And this, by the way, there's some debate here. Is this rich person here a believer or not? The, 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 the most common logical reading is that, yes, he is a believer. He's a rich believer. Don't, don't let somebody tell you this text is saying that to be poor is righteous and to be rich is ungodly. Not true. There's two categories in God's economy. There's righteous and unrighteous. And there's rich people who are righteous, and there's poor people who are righteous. There's uh, rich people who are unrighteous, and there's poor people who are incredibly unrighteous. Right? So that's not the comparison. He's, he's giving us an illustration of having it both ways. And he's saying no matter where you're at, if you're, if you're uh, low or if you're high in, in your wealth, uh, don't be double-minded. See, let, let the lowly boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And he gives another illustration. For like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. He has in mind this, uh, this strong hot wind in the Judean desert. Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to botch saying it. The, it's like a, it starts with a K. Am I, what were you going to say, Kirk? There you go. What Kirk said. It's this, it's this really, what Pastor Kirk said. It's this hot, dry wind. And what would happen, like literally in the course of a couple hours, a flower would wilt. And then perish and be driven away in the wind. Like so fast. He's like, uh, hey, if you're lowly, if you don't have much, if you're poor... Recognize the fact. Don't, don't sulk in that. Don't find your identity there. But boast in the fact. Find pride in the fact. A good pride that in the end, God's going to reverse things. And everything that was Jesus is yours. This is a temporary trial of life. The good is yet to come. Don't, don't find your identity in your poverty. I know it's hard. But count it joy. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And if you're rich, don't forget that you at the end, are going to be at the same place as those who are poor. Uh, I've never seen a, uh, right, you've seen, heard the phrase, I've never seen a hearse carry, or pulling a U-Haul. Like there's, you're not taking anything with you. It's, it's all staying here. 
Just like the flower fades in an afternoon, your life is going to fade right in the midst of your pursuits of wealth. So make sure you, you see your wealth in a godly way and, and you use it in a godly way with an eternal perspective, not focusing on here and now and you. It's fine that you're rich. That's great. Praise the Lord that he's blessed you that way. But keep your eyes on Jesus, not your, not your wallet. Amen? And that's both for rich or for poor. Neither is better. But James is giving an illustration. He says, um, keep your eyes on Jesus. Embrace your trial, whatever it is, whatever your circumstance in life. Ask God for wisdom. He'll give it to you. You can't have it both ways, so embrace the trial. And in verse 12, he gives the, the outcome of embracing the trial. Blessed is the man then who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. There's a couple crowns in the New Testament. There's a diadem crown, like a royal crown with all kinds of jewels on it. And there's this, uh, in Greek, it's called the Stephanus or Stephanus crown. And it's this wreath that the victor got, right? He's like, hey, if you, you climb that ladder, keep going, remain steadfast in it. Let it have its full effect. Don't be double-minded. Uh, embrace it. At the end, you're going to get the crown of life. It's going to end really well. But now look, he he turns the page away from testing uh, to temptation, which in Greek, if you could see it here, I know I keep referencing the Greek today, and it's not to make you feel dumb if you don't know it, but just because there's so much there for you to see, and I want you to be able to understand it. Um, In the testing and temptation are almost the exact same word. They share the same root. By some accounts, they are the same word. And James is like, I want you to understand, though, there's a difference between testing and temptation. He says, let no one, though, when he is tempted, say, I'm being tempted by God. See, because in your trial, what's going to happen? You're going to be tested by the Lord to grow you. He's asking you to embrace it. He's asking me to embrace it. But at the same time, I'm going to be tempted uh, not to embrace it, not to maybe even love the person who's brought the trial into my life, but, but to be bitter with them be angry with them, to turn on them, to sin. And then if I find myself giving into that temptation, I might go, yeah, well, God's testing me and I'm so mad at them. I'm so frustrated with this situation. God tempted me. I said, I didn't bring this on to trial. Like, yeah, you look pretty joyful in it too, right? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, James makes it clear. Don't, don't miss it here. Don't let anyone say when he is tempted, though, that he's being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what's it say? His what? Say it again. His what? His own desire. Um, Now, James doesn't deny the fact that there's an enemy who seeks to destroy us and uh, might, might cause issue for us, but... You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say that every temptation you face is from the enemy. He says it's from within you. It's your desire. It's in you. It's not the devil made me do it. It's uh, Josh did it. (laughs) And it came from within, according to James. It's not the church lady. Mm, Satan? No, it's you. (laughs) Right? It's you. It's you. That's what James says. Uh, he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire. Now look, this is the ladder backwards. This is down the ladder. 
You have a choice. You can go up the ladder or down it. When you face a trial, down his ladder goes, uh, when I'm tempted, I'm enticed by my desire. And then if I don't repent after I'm enticed by my, and the idea is like this idea of like a fishing line and a hook. Like I'm enticed by the bait and it hooks my mouth and I'm dragged away. What could that be? Um, it could be anything. It could be bitterness. It could be anger. It could be overeating. It could be overspending. It could be an addiction. I have no idea for you. Enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth what? Death. So you got a choice, friends. you got a choice. You can uh, take wisdom from above and embrace the trial and endure the testing. Or, or you can uh, give in to your own selfish desire and temptation and uh, turn away from the Lord. Which will it be? If you embrace it, you choose wisdom from above. What's it end with? Crown of life. And now that's life eternally, but I believe that's also life right now. See, when you've trusted Jesus, you have eternal life today. Like you live it out now. It's not future. It's now. Forever. But, but if I turn, uh, it doesn't end in life. It ends in death and destruction. It's your choice, James is saying. Not if you face trials, but when you do of various kinds, you've got a choice. And then finally, he turns us back, though, with a final thought. And uh, this is actually kind of its own section, but I'm including it here. Notice the, he says, don't be deceived then, my dear brothers. There's that, uh, that key phrase we saw earlier. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, uh, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. He's, he's, um, he's not shifting. He's not double-minded. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And everything that's good, listen, every good gift, that wisdom comes down from above. Seek what's above. Like Paul says in Colossians, seek things above. Um, Don't be deceived. Endure the testing. Embrace it. And and look what he says then. Again, he he gives this idea of it ending in life. Of his own, he, he own will, Jesus does it, God does it. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians, the first ones to believe in the gospel. And he's saying, you're going to be like a first fruits of, of all his creatures, of all his church, to believe for the first time in Jesus. This idea of first fruits shows up all over in the Old Testament. And what it is, is it's, uh, you'd, you'd have an offering, and you take the first of your barley harvest. The first thing you harvested, that's what you gave. And with this idea that, Lord, I'm giving this to you and I'm trusting you to bring in the rest. It's my first gift. Or at Pentecost, the, the wheat harvest. And I give the first of the wheat harvest. And then I'm trusting you for the rest to come in. And, and so these Jewish Christians, they were the first to believe in Jesus. And James is trusting that there's so many more, you and I included, who would be brought in in the harvest. But as we close here today, it's just with this last question. And I think it's the question James would ask you and I. How will you respond? When you face trials of various kinds this week, this afternoon, how will you respond? Will you embrace it and endure God's testing and count it joy? Or will you give in and and succumb to temptation? It's a choice. And it's one we face daily.
But I'm telling you, if you embrace that trial, give it a good hug and hold on, it's going to end in joy. It's going to end in life. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus and thanks for your grace to us through him. Lord, uh, you're not caught off guard by any of the trials that we face. Um, In fact, uh, your word seems pretty clear that we can expect to face trials and temptation. And James tells us a good word from you that when we do, we should count it joy. We should embrace it, not run from it, not flee from it, not give, certainly not give in to temptation because of it, but embrace it and it'll end in life. Father, some of us, uh, all of us in some way, shape or form are dealing with consequences too, not trials, but consequences where we need to repent. And uh, so would you show us those things so that then we could uh, embrace what would come after that as you shape us and teach us even from our consequences? Lord, I pray for each one here, whatever it is they're facing. uh, Give them courage to trust you and grace to endure with you and joy in the midst of whatever they're facing. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.